So we are right in the middle of what is often called the Sermon on the Mount. It is a succinct version of Jesus' visionary manifesto for life, you might say. Every good leader has a vision. And Jesus lays out what I would say in Matthew 5 through 7 is the greatest visionary manifesto ever. You could take just that. And I don't believe there's any document in human history compared with Matthew 5 through 7 that has a greater, more succinct, powerful, yet thorough, deep, and transformative vision for the kind of life that's possible. Jesus calls it the kingdom of God. When God reigns, as he already does in heaven, now on earth in your life. And from the very beginning of this series, we've been looking at Jesus' call to action. He finishes his visionary manifesto with the words that says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, they are the ones who build their life on the rock. So the healthy, challenging question for us to always ask, really anytime we get into God's word, anytime in the Sermon on the Mount, is... How can I build my life? How can I take responsibility to hear what Jesus is saying and respond with action? Thus, lining up my life with what Jesus describes here so that I'm building my life on the rock of Jesus as Lord. And we're right in the middle and the heart of the sermon right now, and we're seeing Jesus lay forth some extremely high standards ethical teachings, practical stuff about everyday life. But what you have to know from the very beginning is he believes you can live into this. By the power of his spirit, as you surrender to him being Lord of your life, he believes this can be you. This isn't put forth by Jesus so that you can see a high standard and just feel shame that you can't meet it. He puts these forth as the good news of the life that's possible when you follow him and surrender everything to him and let him reign as Lord and King of your life. So let's look into Matthew 5 and Jesus' teaching for today. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray For those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even Gentiles do that? So if you want to look in your lift notes for a little bit of a framework to help us understand what Jesus is doing, and he's very consistent 
in this framework, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you have heard it was said. So when he says that, he is hearkening back to the, an old way of doing it. Now, some of these things are direct quotes from Old Testament law, but sometimes he also takes what you might call the, the ancient wisdom of the day, where it's not necessarily Old Testament law, it's the kind of the zeitgeist, the, the spirit of the air, the, the common way of looking at something that's been handed down through the ages. This is a perfect case in point. Nowhere in the Bible, in the Old Testament, does it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, it says, but hate your enemy, it never says. So that must be where Jesus is taking Old Testament teaching and then kind of what had been handed down as the way to respond to enemies. And so he's addressing this old way of doing something, and then he's going to say, I have a new command for you. I have a higher law, a higher command, a kingdom command. And in this case, he's going to go to a place that until Jesus had spoke these words, no religious leader in history had ever said, love your enemy. That was unheard of. And then he's going to give, give us a kingdom practice, meaning a practical application. How do we live this out, this new way of kingdom living? And in this case, what we're going to see him say here is the kingdom practice. Love your enemies with undeserved goodness. So that's where we're going. Love your enemies with undeserved goodness. That is Jesus' new radical kingdom command teaching and practice if we want to see the kingdom of God break into our life in greater measure. But let's back up a little bit here to this starting point Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the old way. It's the old ancient wisdom, so to speak. Jesus is addressing a deep problem of the day. Probably one of the deepest challenges that humanity faces. Where it's easy to hate your enemies. One way to think about it is that Jesus is challenging those listening, which would be us at this moment, how far does our love and goodness extend? We all want to think of ourselves as good people, loving people. So do the people who lived by the idea, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They thought that was completely fine. Enemies deserve to be hated. So I love my neighbors. So Jesus is going to go after the propensity in human nature to love those who are like you and who you like. <laughs> and stop there. You love your neighbor, you know. They're like you or you like them. They're easy to get along with. So you extend love and goodness. So interesting how Jesus brings up, <laughs> with that mindset, he wants to bring up people that those listeners would not respect at all. So he talks about tax collectors. He talks about Gentiles. 
The tax collectors were the dregs of the society. They were seen as the traitors. Matthew actually is one of them. He's a traitor to his own people. He's a Jew, but he colluded with the Romans by becoming a tax collector on behalf of the Romans against his own people. And so they were hated. They were seen as the traitors that had, you know, they have now colluded with the empire. If you've seen the Chosen series at all, it does a great job of painting the picture of how Matthew is just hated by his own people. And Jesus says, but even tax collectors, they're good to their own. Aren't, are not even tax collectors doing that? You love those who love you. So he says, that's, that's not impressive in God's eyes. He talks about the Gentiles. Even the Gentiles, who the idea at that time is they are godless. They don't know God. And he's saying, even they are kind to one another. They greet each other. They show a kiss to one another. His point is, Jesus is saying, they're godless. And th- from your perspective, they're godless. And they do these acts of goodness and love. So that's not impressive. God has a much higher law. When God's will is done as it is in heaven, so also on earth, it's going to go much deeper than this surface level love and goodness that even tax collectors and Gentiles are capable of. So that's the the status quo that Jesus is trying to turn upside down. The status quo of how far does your love and goodness extend? And if it just extends to those who are like you and those who you like, it's not nearly as far as what is possible. God has a different plan that goes unbelievably far, offensively far, to where Jesus says, I have a new command for you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's reaffirmed in Luke 6.27, said in a slightly different way. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. I mean, let's, let's try to put this into real life here. Between those two things, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. I mean, this is right where we often, to be honest, ignore Jesus. Let's just be honest. As, well, he must be exaggerating. This must not be real. This must be for someone else, or man, that's just way too hard. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, because I could never be that. That is not what Jesus has in mind at all. He really, really believes that if we dig into our identity in Christ, the blessings of the Beatitudes, depend upon him as our Lord and Savior, allow the Holy Spirit to live and work through us, we can actually become this kind of people that love our enemies and do good to those who hate us in such a way that we actually reflect our Father in heaven to the world. 
And you know Jesus is serious because what he goes on to say, right, right there in the teaching, listen to what he's saying. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be, we'll get into this, that you may show yourself to be children of your Father in heaven. So is Jesus serious or is he exaggerating? Because God causes his son, not <laughs> Jesus the son, the son, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am calling you ultimately to love your enemies in the way that God has loved you. You want to represent me to the world? That's what it's going to look like. God causes his son to rise on the evil. God gives rain to the evil, undeserved goodness. And I am calling my followers to represent the heart of the Father in such a way that you will show that same kind of undeserved goodness to the world around you. So that's where we're going. Let's kind of build it to get there. I want to give us one historical example of a person who I believe understood this and lived it out in one of the most remarkable ways in, in recent history. A way of loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you that is transformative. It did transform the world. It did change the world. This man faced death threats. He was arrested almost 30 times. His house was bombed. He was beaten, stabbed, stoned, put in solitary confinement, had the FBI against him, was attacked by police dogs, was shot with fire hoses, and yet firmly committed to loving his enemies, praying for them, and doing good to people who hated him. He was constantly telling his supporters that the only way the world is going to change is if we listen to the way of Jesus and love even our enemies. Here's a quote from him. Love of even enemies is the key to the solution of the problems of our world. This is Dr. Martin Luther King. Love of even enemies is the key to the solution of the problems of our world. He said Jesus was being a practical realist when he gave this teaching. He's being honest with looking out at the landscape of the world. How is the world actually going to get better? Is it when we just love those who are like us? And those whom we like, when we do good to those who are already in our little group and that we already like, is that going to make the world better? No. It's when we're willing to cross the boundaries of those who are not like us and those we don't like, those who even have persecuted us or hated on us, and we're willing still to love them with an undeserved goodness like God does when he sends rain and sun and all sorts of abundant goodness upon even the evil and the righteous, that might actually bring some change to the world. Grounded in a firm spirit of loving of enemies, 
following the announcement of the favorable Supreme Court decision about desegregating seats on the Montgomery buses, Dr. King said this, the end of it all, meaning the goal, we don't use that word as much anymore, the end, but that's the goal, the telos, actually great Greek word, the telos, meaning when something accomplishes its purpose, its goal, its end. The end of what we're doing, is his point, is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community, which was his language for like the redeemed body of Christ. It's the picture of Revelation where every tongue, tribe, and nation is together around the throne as a body of Christ worshiping the king. That's a beloved, that is the beloved community. That's his goal. It is this type of spirit, this type of love that can transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding of goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. And by the new age, he means the kingdom of God coming to earth, this new kingdom breaking in. And he's directly applying the words of Jesus. I mean, we can talk about this right here. This guy's got street cred. His house was bombed. And he said, I still love him. Even after his house was bombed, he refused to let his guards carry weapons. Because he said, no, I I don't even want to walk down that road. Because if we are violent, even if it's a justified self-defense, I know what's going to happen. This whole movement is lost. And I'm not saying whether or not justify self-defense. I'm not getting into that. I'm saying look at his heart on display of saying the clear mission of loving enemies with an undeserved goodness and how that has unbelievably practical opportunities and applications to transform the world around us. And it did in our country. I remember when I found out that I was shocked to know that before you were allowed to march in one of Dr. King's uh, rallies and, and marches, peaceful protests, you had to do a training. And the training was specifically in enemy love. And it was, here's how you are to respond through in nonviolent but direct action. It kind of combines last week where it was like, you know, the turn the other cheek that's not weakness. It's not let yourself be abused. It's stand up and show your dignity and worth. But there was a very, very specific training of we are not going to respond evil with evil, hate with hate. And he would actually quote Gandhi in that moment, who got it from Jesus, by the way, the idea, no, seriously, Gandhi said he would have become, he loved Jesus and he wanted to become a Christian. He did. And he said, the, if it wasn't for the Christians, he would have become a Christian. Because there was, he, he, he faced racism in, in India where he was not welcomed at the time to become a Christian. It's, it's unbelievable history. But he had wild respect for Jesus and he and he said, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And he was getting this picture from Jesus 
that in order for hate to be eradicated, hate is not going to drive out hate. There has to be something radical and different. And it's this teaching of Jesus. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. It was powerful, direct action. It's a great example for all of us, Dr. King is, in that our life, we can simplify. Love God, love others. That's what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, right? Do we love others when it gets hard? Do we love others when they are just a part of our group or a part of the group that we like or a part of the people that are easy to get along with. They're like you or you like them. Jesus is saying to create that beloved community, to create, to see the kingdom of God break in and advance on earth, we have to go to a whole nother level of love. We've got to go deep into the way that God loved us so that we can pass that on and love those who don't deserve it. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, and he uses a word that I think is so appropriate because Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And we're like, why would we do that? They deserve to not be loved. And then Paul reminds us, you are God's enemy but he loved you anyway. So you better slow down on calling other people enemies and how much they don't deserve your love. Because if you want that to be how God treats you, you're in trouble. Romans 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. So there's that, there's that picture of that undeserved goodness that Jesus is talking about where the rain falls on the unrighteous and the righteous. The sun shines on the evil and the good. And now you can take the metaphor and say, the sun shines on the, on the evil and the good. The Son of God came And what does it say? While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the good. He didn't die for the righteous. He didn't die. The son didn't die for those who had it all together. Praise God, right? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If, here we go, verse 10. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? When we were God's enemies, when we were powerless, when we were ungodly, when we were unrighteous, when we were sinners, when we were running from God, telling God, no thanks, I don't need you. 
I've got it on my own strength. I don't need your righteousness. I don't need your help. I've got it all going on. I'm good. No, thank you. While we were enemies from God or enemies of God, in that moment, so I mean, we're, we're, we're hard-hearted. We're rejecting God. We're not willing to repent. We're telling God we don't need him. We don't want him. He's not worthy. And he still died for us. There wasn't an inkling of, I love you, I need you, I'm sorry, I repent, help me. That's not what the Bible is saying. <laughs> the Bible is saying before there was anything that was going on in us that was a hint of righteousness or goodness or humility or love, at our absolute worst, sinners, ungodly, unrighteous, running from God, enemies of God, that's when he showed his utmost demonstration of love and goodness. And Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to the same for your enemies. Before they've done anything to deserve it. Because that's what your heavenly father does for you. What is the source of enemy love? <laughs> Your own salvation. The source of enemy love is when we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. <laughs> Your whole life is dependent on enemy love. Your whole salvation is dependent on enemy love. Your whole future is dependent on enemy love. Your whole eternity is dependent on enemy love. That while you were an enemy of God and deserved nothing good, you got the best. You got the death of Christ on your behalf. God did not wait until we had our act together, until we had kindness towards him, goodness towards him before he was good to us. He didn't wait for us to be nice to him before he was kind to us. He burned with this unconditional, undeserved goodness toward us while we were enemies. The more we're in touch with that, the more we'll have a wellspring of undeserved goodness to pass on. There's a great word that Dr. King actually did some scholarly work on in one of his books that explains this power of love, this nature of love. Some of you have heard it. It's called agape, right? Dr. King, was, he's a doctor. Like he's a do, He was a doctor of philosophy. He was a Greek scholar and did some awesome work. I, I had, there's no other better definition of agape than, that I've found Translated from the Greek into a, a, a uh, what would be called like a, <laughs> my vocabulary is awesome, like a summary description, like not just a translation, but like a paraphrase. Listen to this. Agape is a quote. Now we're in Dr. King's book. I think it's Strength of Love. I forgot. I quoted this a while ago and I didn't go find the source. Strength to Love by Dr. King, though. One of the best books you'll ever read on all of this. Here we go. Agape is, quote, 
an overflowing love, which is purely, that's, that's a perfect picture right there, actually. That's kind of all you need to see. It's like, a t- uh, <laughs> yes, it's a waterfall. It's a fountain. It's a fountain with an eternal spring that has no beginning. And like Jonathan Edwards said, it's even when he was approached with the question of like, why did God create the world? And famously he said, it is no fault of a fountain to overflow. That's the nature of God's agape love. It just overflows. It's not because God was weak and lonely and needed us and was sad. It is because he's just overflowing with love. It's the nature of his love just flows outwards, and we're the blessed recipients of it. Flowed outward into creation that we, get, we got created so that we could spend an eternity with, with him so that love could just keep flowing out to all eternity. So it's a fountain that flows. Agape is an overflowing love which is purely spontaneous. That's so good. Unmotivated groundless, meaning it's not like the fountain's sitting there looking at you being like, well, as soon as you're good enough, I'll love you. Uh Uh-uh. It's just flowing and hitting you even while you don't deserve it. You want to remember what Jesus said? The Father causes the Son to rise and shine on the evil and the good, the rain to fall on the unrighteous and the righteous. There it is. That's agape. That is the love of God, just, it's unmotivated, spontaneous, groundless. You don't deserve it, and it's splashing your way no matter what. Agape does not begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy and makes no distinction between a friend and an enemy. It is directed towards both. It is a redeeming goodwill for all. Agape love is seeking to preserve and create community with God and one another. That is a fantastic description. I mean, wow. That is some great, great language that does true justice to the Greek sense of the word And to exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 about how the sun is, it's just shining, man. You can't stop the sun from shining when you wake up and choose evil. You can't stop the rain from coming when you're being a bad person. Jesus says that's happening and that is the nature of the love of God for all. You can't stop it no matter what. You can reject it, though. So let's be clear. (laughs) You can't stop it from coming your way, but you can say, I don't want it. A little clarification. Putting that back now to Matthew 5. In Jesus' teaching for today, he says, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And the real, the sense of this language construction here is that you may show yourselves to be 
children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, do good to those who hate you, and what are you doing? You are showing yourselves to be children like your Father in heaven. When you love your enemies, when you do good to those who hate you and have wronged you, you are showing yourself to be a chip off the old block. You're showing yourself to have your father's spiritual DNA. It's embedded in you. Because you know you have been the recipient of such a great depth of enemy love, undeserved goodness, it has transformed you to now, when given the opportunity, you have undeserved goodness to pour out upon the world around you. And what it is meant to do is exactly what Dr. King said, is to transform enemies to friends, to transform conflict and hate into relational reconciliation. It's you live out what God has already done with you in the world around us. Create that beloved community. Don't give enemies what they deserve. Overwhelm them with goodness. And as we love those who don't deserve it, we are being like our Father in heaven. I think I'm going to pause here and have my wife close us with a word and a prayer. I actually want to share a testimony about this because I feel like sometimes it just puts the feet on something, you know, gives us an example of how this looks. Even Martin Luther King's life is, I mean, <laughs> that man is one of the most amazing disciples of Jesus that I have ever seen. I am just continually blessed by his life. But I want to share with you a personal story, um, actually, about our son and where he actually lived this out. Uh, this was a while back in, in his workplace. And um, I'm just going to hold that with my hand. It's been folded up in my backpack for a while, so it's not staying straight for me to read my notes. So our oldest son had this situation, an extremely difficult situation, that most adults would have a very hard time with. I mean, it was absolutely awful. It was the very short gist of it was that there was a coworker who was jealous of him who then made up lies and told the bosses so that my son would lose shifts and everybody would think bad things about him that weren't true at all. So he was suffering for this, financially, emotionally, having everybody turn against him. And so I had my friends and my mom um, and our family just praying for him. And two people got the exact same word. My mom and a very good friend both said they felt so strongly that the Lord put on their heart that he needed to bless his enemy to truly bless him. 
And from one of the friends, I had a personal testimony where they had a similar situation. And just through blessing that everything transformed. So my oldest son was like, okay, okay, all right, I, I'm going to do this. It's going to be really hard. Because every time I, I mean, every time he saw this guy, he's like, mom, it's so hard. Every time I see this guy, I just think you're a slithery serpent. And he was. I mean, this guy was. He was super nice to his face. He would make him food and give him hugs. And, 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 and it just, anyways, um, but there was a shift in my son where this went a lot deeper. And he called me one day and he said, Mom, something happened today. Instead of just blessing this guy, you know, during his time with God or throughout the day, he would, he would just say, you know, God, bless this person, bless him. He said, I listened to the Holy Spirit. I listened to what God wanted to bless him with. I listened for God's heart for this person. And he spent a considerable time in intercession, listening to the Holy Spirit to bless every single person at his workplace who had been wronging him. And the amazing thing is, you know, sometimes these things take time. Sometimes breakthrough, especially when it's strongholds in people's hearts, Sometimes those things take time. You know, sometimes we have immediate breakthrough. But there's, there's something to blessing and embracing a process of building the kingdom and breaking strongholds. And so he did that. And he built into his life the daily practice of blessing. And this is some real stuff. I mean, when you have somebody literally making up sinister lies about things you said and did, and you are suffering but from everyone in your workplace because of these lies that are going around, and you're losing money and losing shifts, that's a big, that is a big deal. That is not a small thing. But his testimony is that after months and months, I don't know how long it took, but there was such a powerful transformation where his enemy became his friend. Even to the point that KJ, at the end, was releasing prophetic words over this guy. And he had so prayed for this person that he had so much compassion for where he was coming from and the difficult places that he had come from, the strongholds, the oppression, the thing that, things that bound him, the things that made him so desperate to throw my son under the bus so he could look good. My son had, had the heart of God birthed in him in that process and the strength to love. And the fruit at the end is that they are friends for life and there is tremendous blessing my son is constantly releasing blessing over him to accomplish all of his dreams, to no longer be held back by the things that oppressed him and made him desperate to come and to lie, to try to make good things happen. And there, this, is, this is where the rubber hits the road, where we need to make a choice to embrace the process of blessing because most of the time, a heart doesn't shift in an instant. It can. God is the God of the impossible. But we want to be a people in a community who embrace the
the process of blessing, who bear with one another's burdens, who ask the Holy Spirit for compassion and for understanding. Because a lot of times if we knew what people had been through, we wouldn't be judging them like we do. We would be advocating for them. We would be interceding for them, for the power of God to come and minister to them and free them. So yeah, amen. Sing a new song.